You're listening to Pastor Jesse Miller of City Lights Church. This morning, I want to share, and we're kind of going through this, this idea of family. When you look at the family, when you look at the home, there's different aspects and different roles and functions in the family. And we're going to start, we talked about the father last week, but we want to address them, because not everybody in here is a physical father. We want to talk about what does it mean to be a man in today's culture and, and a biblical understanding of the roles and the responsibilities of a man. If you're not a man, don't worry. There's things in here for you as well. And if you're a wife, you can tell your man how to be. Um, so this is fuel for your fire if you want that. Whatever you need to get out of it, pay attention this morning. So don't, don't check out if you're a woman this morning. Um, so what does it mean to be a man uh, culturally? What, what do we understand as masculine? It's funny, uh, a few, about a month ago was Mike and Sarah's wedding, right? About a month ago, somewhere around there. Um, and we're at the wedding, great reception, awesome band downstairs, just having a good time. And all the women, like a bunch of our wives get together, and they take this like six-person selfie, right? And Crystal goes to me and Ben, okay, now it's the guy's turn to take a selfie. And Ben and I go, uh, no, we're men. We don't do selfies. And I explained later on to my wife that the rules of men's selfies are there better be a woman in the picture, like my wife, we can take selfies together, or there better be something awesome behind us, like the Grand Canyon or a football team or something really cool. Um, We don't just do, hey, this is me and my friend. Like, that's a cultural, to me, that's like a cultural, me and Ben understood. As soon as Crystal said, take a selfie, all the guys were like, no. You could take a picture of us but we don't do selfies. They should change that word to like self-photos or something because then men could be like, yeah, I'll take a self-photo. But selfie, sorry. But do you understand what I'm saying? There's, there's cultural understandings of what's masculine and what's feminine, right? This morning, though, I want to look at a biblical understanding. I'm not saying that was biblical at all. I'm just saying that's the rule that Ben and I agree to for ourselves. If you want to do your own selfies and you're a man in here, I won't judge you. But we want to this morning look at understanding if I'm a man, if I'm, if I'm created to be a man, what does that mean biblically? What, what is my responsibilities? What, what, do I, what, what should I get my masculinity out of? What, what are the things that are my goals? Um, so what makes a man? And I, I, I realize that our social experience has a lot of different definitions of what masculinity is. And I don't want to find my identity as a man and social expectations, but rather I want to replace that with God's design for me. Does that make sense? If I'm a man, I want to look not at my social standards, but I want to say, God, what do you desire for me to be? If I'm the man, if I am a man, what, how should my, my, what should my goals be? What should my objective be? What should I find my identity in? When I think about man and looking at an example, I think our first example needs to be Christ himself. God come down to earth in the flesh in the form of a man. He needs to be our primary example. Christ needs to be my example as the ultimate man. He was God and he was also man. So if I say, God, what do you desire for me to look like? I need to look at Christ as my example. What should my attitudes, what should my motives, what should my my whole demeanor look like? And so we see this, we see that Christ was a man who loved the things of the Father. The things that the Father loved were the things Christ loved. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, this is what Jesus says. Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am a gentle, I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, I love that Jesus describes himself not as strong here, not as mighty, not as hard, but come to me because I am gentle and lowly in heart. We see a Jesus who is, a, is gentle with sinners, gentle with the broken. We also see that he's aggressive with evil. We see that he's aggressive with unrighteousness. But in his everyday demeanor, Jesus was a loving, gentle person. Agree? Jesus did not come with massive muscles looking at Arnold Schwarzenegger trying to intimidate everybody around him, trying to control the Pharisees and scare them with tactics, even political schemes. He wasn't trying to up observe the uh, Roman authority. He wasn't trying to do that. He came gently and healed the sick, mended the broken, was a friend of widows and orphans and, and children. He let the children come to him. We see Jesus who has, who's passionate about the things that the Father loves. So if I'm looking for him as my ultimate example of what it means to be a man, i got to recognize that I should be passionate about the things God loves, the broken and the weak. I need to be gentle in my heart. I need to be compassionate and loving. We see a Jesus who doesn't desire to be self-seeking or build up his own kingdom. We see Jesus who's looking at the will of the Father. Not my will, but your will be done. We see Jesus who's not self-seeking, not, not after his own goals, but the goals of the Father, the goals of the kingdom, something beyond himself. When I look at, I just want to look at a few statistics real, real quick. There is overwhelmingly a lack of men in the church in America. The typical U.S. congregation draws an adult crowd that's 61% female, 39% male. This uh, gender gap is in all age categories. It's not just one age. It's all age categories. There's a drastically low number of men in churches. Maybe not this church, because I've noticed that for a long time. Our church has a lot of men in it, which I'm grateful for. But across the nation, there are more women who go to church than men. On any given Sunday, there are 13 million more adult women than men in American churches. 13 million. See, our culture has defined men as men who are masculine, and spirituality is not for men. Church, Jesus, religion, belief systems are not masculine. They're a feminine thing. So wives go ahead and go to church. Our mothers go ahead in church. We don't need to because we need to put food on the table. We need to hunt and be men. The spirituality thing, let's let the women do that. I remember we were, Jared and I were walking through Scranton. We were like doing some um, surveys of this local area. And I can't tell you how many men I knocked on their door. The men came out and we talked, we just asked them a few questions, kind of doing a survey. And we asked them where they went to church. And they say, well, I don't really go to church. My wife's Catholic, so I'm Catholic. Or um, I haven't been to church in a while, but my wife goes to this Presbyterian church all the time. Like they associated their belief system with the church that their wife attended. I see a problem in that. Because I don't remember anywhere in Scripture that said, go ahead and send your wives to church. That's good enough for you. I don't remember that. There's a, there's a problem in our culture that associates spirituality and, and seeking Christ with something that's feminine. It's not very masculine. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. I want you to look at this with me. Chapter 6, verse 4. 
it says this, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. The responsibility of a father is not to be to make your kids angry, to be the hard disciplinarian, but to instruct in the way of God. It is my responsibility as a dad and as a man to teach my kids how to love God, to teach them what it is to pursue him and to love Jesus. Jimmy shared the story last week about how Haley went up in his room, saw the wrestlers in his room, and said to him, why do you love wrestling? And he's like, I don't, I don't know. And she said, I bet you love Jesus more than, more than wrestling. And then she said, I do too, or something like that, right? That makes me very happy. And I know that she's a kid and she's not understanding. This, this past week I had to call my mom and I called my wife because I was with the girls putting them to bed. And um, I'm, I'm getting them ready for bed. And Faith's like, Dad, Dad. I'm like, what? She said, uh, where, where does Jesus sleep? I said, what do you mean? She's like, because if he's in heaven, him can't lay down on the clouds because he'll fall through. And I said, uh, I said, well, Jesus doesn't sleep because he's God. He doesn't need to sleep. And then Haley, let's see, this is, I'm, I'm exposing some of my problems here. Let me set, set a background here for this part of the story. This has nothing to do with my message, really. Um, Haley and, well, anybody who has young kids, they don't like sleep. They don't believe in sleep. They don't want to sleep. Um, and I have convinced them that our bodies need sleep. And the simplest way for me to explain that was saying, if you don't sleep, your bodies will fall apart. Um, and so when Haley heard Faith say about Jesus falling through the clouds, he can't sleep on clouds, and I said Jesus doesn't sleep, Haley's response was, then Dad, how do his hands not fall off? And I said, because he's God. So let's just, let's just leave it at that. Um, so I'm still, I'm still trying to teach them what it is to love and, and know God, and, and, and I'm not great at it. I'm still trying to figure it out. But my responsibility is to not, like, just go ask your mom or not talk about Jesus. I love getting to read the children's, there's a Jesus storybook Bible. I love reading that with my girls because I get to see them learn how, who Jesus is and how he loves them. I don't hide that. That's not something that makes me less of a man. Scripturally, I see that my responsibility is to teach them to love and to know Jesus, to instruct them in that. That's something that makes me a man. That's something that makes me a father. Our culture has turned spirituality into a feminine pursuit and a feminine discussion. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. If Paul says that, and he's an awesome man, he's been through a lot, whipped, beaten, shipwrecked, he's a pretty tough guy. Um, which I also believe he was short and bald. So he wasn't your exact Arnold Schwarzenegger either. But he was tough. And he says, I am not ashamed of this gospel. It was all that he desired, all that he taught. As a man, I need to have a desire for spiritual things, to seek and know him first. Our culture turns it into something different. In our culture, we, we think of being a man as how as long as I can fight, as long as I'm de- I can defend my, my family, as long as I'm tough, as long as I can make money, or as long as I don't cry during a movie or something, as long as I don't cry at all, as long as I can have sex as much as I want, as long as I don't talk about my feelings or my beliefs, these are the things that make me somehow more masculine. 
pursuing sex and, and not talking about emotions and, and not talking about belief systems. These somehow make me more of a man. Our culture has flipped everything upside down. David, who Jimmy talked about last week as well, pretty awesome man. The psalmist, he says this, he says, David says, as a deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you. That doesn't sound like a typical man saying. My soul longs for you, Jesus, as a deer needs water. That's the heart of David. We see that scripture says that David was a man after God's own heart. If I'm looking for masculinity, I want to have a heart that says, God, I long for you more than anything else. Anything else. And I want my wife to know that. I want this church to know that. I want my friends and family to know that I desire more of God's presence. See, when we're looking at men, I think our culture, um, man desires, we just kind of talked about a few of those things, but man desires to dominate women as opposed to lead them. There's a difference. Genesis chapter 3, 16, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it real quickly. It's part of the curse. After man sins, it says this to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply the the pains of childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. What he's not saying here is because you sinned, I'm going to make men dominate you. What he's saying is because of the sin in the human heart now, you're going to desire to uproll and and overstep your husband and and dominate him, and the man is going to desire to dominate women. That's the culture that we see. Men, we desire to dominate women. That's not the God-created way of the family. There was, there was a structure, there was an order, there was a respect, there was a leadership in the heart of man, but it wasn't dominating. It wasn't to crush the woman or to belittle her or to negate her. It was to help lead and, and protect and guide and love and cherish her. The woman's cry in her heart wasn't to overstep her husband and to dominate him and to control him or manipulate him. It was to love and cherish and support and respect her husband. But part of the fall was this this flipping of the way that family's supposed to be. All of a sudden, men desire to dominate and rule over the women the way that they weren't created to. We see in men that we have a natural desire for physical conquest, whether it's through fighting or wars or proving our physical might, or whether it's through sexual conquest, a desire to, to dominate over women um, and, and instead of having love and intimacy. We see in Scripture and even in the garden that man was created to love and be intimate with a wife, not to dominate over multiple women. I, um, I joked recently about how my, I'm a big reader and my wife knows that I like different entertainment magazines. And she recently got me the Rolling Stone. And I recently realized how much I don't like that magazine. And I, I was joking about how the, uh, the for us and against us scale that they have is ridiculous. Um, in the most recent one that I read, far on the against us side, this is an exact quote. It was a picture of Phil Robertson, which I know the whole Phil Robertson thing, whether you love Duck Dynasty or not. His quote was, you don't get STDs from biblical sex. And the Rolling Stone is like, that's ridiculous. He's against us. No, he's saying you don't get sexual diseases from following God's created designed for sex. 
culture says we want to have sex with whoever we want to, anytime. Men, we want to dominate. Women, we want to dominate. We want to explore everything sexually. And somehow him saying you won't get an STD if you do it the way that the scripture talks about is against us. This is the culture that wants to flip things upside down on its head from the way God created us to be. God loves sex. Let me say that. He loves it in his order and the way he designed it. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he tells a husband and wife, do not deprive each other of sex unless you figured out some time frame for you guys to pray and fast together and not have sex. But then it says so you don't go back to, to any kind of lust, go back to sex. We have a God who's not against sex. He's for it. But there's a way and an order to be a man and not dominate women, to not give in to sinful desires, sinful temptations. And the same thing for a woman. There is a way that sex was created. It was not created for us to dominate and to be the upper species or to to see how many women we can sleep with or, or just kind of do our own thing as long as we get what we need. We need to understand what it means to be a biblical man. As a biblical man, as a man who's after the heart of God, I love my wife. I love that I'm a husband to a wife. I don't dominate over her. I don't roll over her with an upper fist. I, 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 or is that a word? Upper fist? Upper hand? I think that's it. What did you say? An iron fist? Upper hand, iron fist. That's it. I mixed the two. I just did that. I created my own. Um, I'm going to go iron hand from now on. So for you single guys, though, what, what, I'm, I'm talking a lot about the role of a husband here and how we interact with our wives. What do, we, what, do we, what do we believe? What does this church believe? What do we see scripturally for us single guys? For, for not us single guys. Sorry. I'm married. So sorry. Sorry. But for single guys, you're like, okay, he's been talking about a husband here for a while. I love, there's a pastor in Philly who, whose name is Eric Mason. And he, in his book about um, manhood restored, he says this for single fellas. Flee, follow, fellowship. We see scripturally we're to flee sexual immorality. We follow Christ with all of our hearts, and we fellowship with other believers to keep us strong. That is the viewpoint that we take here at City Lights. If you're single, we need to desire the things of God. We need to pursue him. We follow him. We flee sexual immorality. We recognize that there's a biblical mandate for sex. There's a biblical mandate for the way we live our lives. We discussed over the last few weeks, oh, also I want to throw this in there. We also see in scripture that there are men who are called to be celibate, and that's good too. Not every man needs to get married. Getting married and having babies does not make you a man as well. There are men like Paul who says, I'm pursuing God 100%. A woman would just distract, distract me right now. So I want to encourage those men as well who recognize that my heart is to pursue him and only him. That's okay too. That's not me. I I didn't I couldn't do that, but that's good if it's you. So let me let me just say that and be clear about that. So fellas, flee, follow fellowship. Our heart is to desire God. If we're a biblical man, it's not about your muscle. It's not about the money. It's not about sex. It's about understanding and pursuing Him. A heart that desires God more than anything else. We discuss Father what that means uh, over the last few weeks, so I'm not going to get deeply into that. Jimmy talked great last week about the heart of a father, um, how he puts the needs of his kids beyond his own needs. Um, that's part of 
the picture there we have as being a man or as a father. We see in Scripture, I talked about this last week in our home groups, that Scripture talks about uh, fathers laying up for their sons, not sons laying up for their fathers. And there are way too many fathers in our world who want to dominate and lord over their kids, live vicariously through their kids, have their kids give them something. And we see in Scripture that husbands or fathers build something for their kids. We, we, our goal is to give something better for our children. Does that make sense? It's not self-seeking. It's selfless living for our kids. This last section that I really want to talk about this morning is, is the idea of husbands a little bit more. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, it says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves him, his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Behold, we are the members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and to the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let his wife see him, see that she respects her husband. We see in this passage in Ephesians that I am to love my wife the same way I would love my own body. I wouldn't do anything to destroy it, hurt it, criticize or ridicule it. I love my wife the way, the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. So my responsibility as a man, like I had just stated before, is the opposite of self-seeking, the opposite of selfishness. My responsibility and my goal in my marriage to my wife is how do I help and invest in her? How do I uplift her? How do I encourage her? How do I build up her character and not the other way around? Our culture, we see husbands and wives watch any movie about relationships. There's a lot of selfishness. Husbands are just complaining. Wives are just complaining because they don't get what they want. Of course, there are times to address real issues in relationships, but I'm talking about we, we built this culture that marriages end the moment my wife starts, stops serving me the way I want to be served, or she leaves me the way I stop serving her. There is a communication between us that my goal is what do I need to do for my wife, and her goal should be what do I need to do to love my husband. That is the biblical understanding of family and marriage, the way Christ gave himself up for the church. I love that it says this, this, verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. I've said this before, and I said it at Mike and Sarah's wedding. I believe the family was created so that we can reflect the image of God, the love of God. And if I'm not doing that as a husband, I'm not doing that as a man. I'm created to reflect his image. And being a good husband, the way the scripture says, is a way I reflect my manhood. Does that make sense? So we see this idea of leading and loving your wives. Um, if Ash, if you can come up. I want her to share. We're going to share a little bit of our story. Most, a good bit of you have heard our story, um, how we moved here. But I, wanna, I want you to hear from her words what our, our experience was. And she's a crier, so she might cry, and I probably will too. Because if she cries, I cry. And so I apologize. Somebody bring us tissues a while. It will be good. But um, I want to explain, for those of you who don't know, who are new um, to City Lights, and 
if you aren't new and you've heard this story before, I apologize. Just listen anyway or look on your phones for a few minutes. I'm kidding. <laughs> Check your Facebook status. You can, you can tweet this if you want. Jesse and Ashley tell the story. There you go. Hashtag awesome. Hashtag city lights. <laughs> um, our story for your in 2010, um, actually, we moved here in 2010. In 2009, I was a youth pastor at a pretty large church um, in, in the Gettysburg area of Pennsylvania. And um, things were good. And I remember Jared, um, actually my friend Chris, came to me and he said, you know, Jared and I have really been praying about this church in Scranton. We really feel like God's calling us to, to move there. And I knew as soon as he started talking about it, I'm like, they're going to ask me. They're going to ask me. And um, so Chris and I are on this hike through the Appalachian tra- Trail, and Chris said, you know, Jared and I were talking, we'd really like for you to be a part of this thing. And uh, I said to him, I said, well, if Jared wants me, Jared has to ask me, <laughs> which is ridiculous because I knew he would anyway. So Jared calls me up, and he sits down with me and Ash um, at a, a coffee house in, um, in Gettysburg, and he shares the vision of Scranton. And I'm like, I'm excited about it, but we kind of did this thing where – I, I gave God like a thousand things he had to do before it was good. Like God, take care of all my school debt, all of these bills, and make this thing happen, this thing happen. So I gave God this ridiculous list. And uh, Ash had kind of just assumed that, you know, it was no big deal. Um, it was out of my mind because we were comfortable. And over the next few months, I continued to feel God's unrest in my spirit. Like God was saying, you really need to seek me on this. And so I began to pray and fast, and I gave up meat. And um, now I'm going to let my wife talk a little bit. So. I remember whenever he first gave up the meat, I was thinking, oh, this is like a day or two, you know, whatever. I don't know. what He must be praying about something. And then it had been, I think, five or seven days, and I'm like, what? You're still not eating meat. And for Jesse not to eat meat, that's like a massive <laughs> sacrifice. So I was like, what's going on? Why aren't you eating meat? And um, he told me, well, I'm really praying and fasting about what Jared had asked us to do going to Scranton. And initially, like, I was really mad. Like, (laughs) no, and before that, when they had talked to us, I thought, oh, that sounds cool. Like, I'll pray about it, you know. But when I found this out, I'm like, why are you praying and fasting because you want to go to Scranton? Like, I was mad, and, and I was, he was, it was just, it was like an internal thing within me. I had spoke that I was praying about it months before, and then we kind of didn't hear anything about it, so I assumed it was off the radar, and then it came back. And um, so I think the conversation ended that night, and a couple of days later, you know, he's like, how are you feeling about this? And I'm like, I prayed, and God told me we're not doing it, <laughs> was my first reaction. And he said to me, did you really pray? did you really pray? Did you really hear from God? And when he asked me that, I realized in my heart that no, I hadn't. Like in my mind, I didn't want to do this. I was comfortable. I was fine where I was at. And it was too hard to pray and think about it. So I did actually start praying and thinking about it because he made me realize that I was being selfish and that I hadn't even given God a true chance to speak to my heart. And I think after that, like, I knew that God was prompting me and Jesse to do this, but I still didn't want to. Like, it wasn't like, oh, I'm feeling this. I'm so excited. I was, like, trying to keep it quiet, not telling Jesse, like, what I was feeling. And um, eventually, you know, we talked about it, and we both recognized that this was something that God was calling us to do. 
and then we came up here. I don't know how far you want to no, um, so after that conversation and where I said, did you really pray about it? Um, I, I don't remember if it was a few days later or whatever. She's like, let's talk to Jared. Let's visit Scranton. Um, so I remember it was October of 2009 that we came up here and visited. Uh, we stayed at Jared's grandparents' house. We were here for one night and we were driving um, back south toward, our, toward Gettysburg on 81. And we looked at each other and she said, we're moving here. And I said, yeah, we are. It wasn't, um, it was just a feeling. There was nothing, there was no divine word. There was no, like, argument. It was just a feeling that we both knew, even though it was really uncomfortable, even though we had to sacrifice some things, that God was speaking to both of us about moving here. Um, thank you. <laughs> um so what that looked like for us was just a mutual recognition that God was saying something to both of us. Um, the funny thing is, it's worked the same way with our house. We, we walked through 15 different houses, and we're like, these are nice houses. We finally got to our house, and it was studs, literally. They, there was nothing. There was, like, no walls inside there. Just, like, junky floors you could barely get across on the second floor. So it was kind of scary. And we walked out of there, and we're like, we both looked at each other, and we're like, this is our house. Um, what I'm si- what I'm, why I'm sharing this story is because I believe that God's design for men to lead a house isn't me telling Ash, you're going to pack up, we're going to move. I feel this way, so we're going to move. My responsibility at that moment when she said, I prayed about it, I knew in my heart she didn't pray about it, so I just questioned it. As a man, my responsibility is to say, Ash, really, what, what is God saying? We pray about things together. We make decisions together. If I feel God's saying something, I'm going to push, press that issue. I'm going to push on it. I'm going to, I'm going to ask that God's will is done in our marriage. And I'm going to push it until it happens. <laughs> and I expect her to do the same thing. I expect her that when she sees me not being led by the Spirit, not asking God for decisions, that she begins to push me. This is the way a man is supposed to lead his house. We're supposed to seek after the things of God together. I don't dominate and lord over her. When I think about this, when I talk about leading our wives, it's the exact opposite of what I saw in my grandparents. I would see a grandfather who told her when they went where and what they did and how she was supposed to live her life, how she was supposed to spend her days. She never got her license, not because she couldn't figure out how to get a license, but because he didn't want her driving anywhere. This is not what I'm talking about when I say men leading their wives. The biblical way to lead a wife is to love her and cherish her and push her to experience God the same way you are. That's being a man leading her house. It's not, it's not making every decision. Let me, there are a lot of pastors who will teach that men need to lord over their house, that they make all the rules, that they are the providers of the house, that they make the most money. Um, that they watch the money. Let me, let me be honest with you. My wife, her degree, she's got her degree in administration. She's good with money. She's good with bills. She works for a medical billing company. That is not my degree. It would be very silly of me to say, how about I take care of all the money? She is a professional at taking care of money. So I, le- I come to her and I say, Ash, how much money do we have? Can we get this? That doesn't make me less of a man. That says I recognize she's gifted in that. As a man, I trust her with that. 
that if you're a man and you're good at money and your wife is not, great. That doesn't make you a man. What makes you a man is saying, this is how we're going to lead our house. This is how we're going to live life together. This is what you're good at. This is what I'm good at. This is how we can encourage each other. This is how we can build a family together. I, I hope you're understanding me here. And if you're single and you're bored by this, I'm apologizing. I'm, I'm hoping, hoping I'm giving you some foundations here to live a life on. I want us as a church to understand when we say what does it mean to be a man, a father, a family. That's what this whole series is for, so that we're on the same page. We understand what Scripture says about this. I want to read this um, this poem, actually, which I don't do that very much. And it's not really a poem, so if you're expecting good rhymes, I apologize. It's one of those really, like, artsy poems, like Jimmy was doing last night, where we just played the djembe and kind of random words that's a, it's one of those poems but i came across this years ago and it's it's stuck with me um the guy who writes it his name's bradley hathaway he's an incredibly skinny small little guy okay and i'm going to read a portion of it because um, I, wa- I want us to understand manliness has nothing to do with how good at hunting hunting you are or how good of a beard you can grow sorry guys we love our beards it doesn't make you more of a man um it just doesn't scripturally. <laughs> I enjoy my beard, and if you have a beard, grow it. If you can't, you're still a man. Uh, if you have a beard and you're a woman, I apologize. That's that's different. <laughs> but I think I think our culture also sets standards with things like that. It sets standards like okay, if you're really good at sports, somehow you're more of a man. If you're you have a lot of sex, somehow you're more of a man. If you're good at controlling or fighting, somehow you're more of a man. Um, fighting either verbally or physically. Like I know I know a lot of those men who they couldn't use their fists at all because they don't know what to do, but they use their words and they're destructive and somehow they think they're more manly. I want to read this poem real quick um, or semi-poem, whatever you want to call it. It says, I am a manly man. If danger lurks about, I will seek it out. If adventure abounds, there I will be found. If a damsel be in distress, I will show her who's best. I am a manly man because I don't flush and I leave the lid up. I drive a 1988 Ford pickup truck. Girls don't break up with me. I break up with them first, except for the last time it didn't work out that way. I don't shave the hair on my face because I can't grow facial hair yet. But I wouldn't if I could because beards are tough. I fart, burp, spit when I want, not caring who is nearby. Disrespect my mama and I will punch you in the eye because I am a manly man. Or am I? I tell my guy friends that I love them. Sometimes I even hug them. No, not because I'm gay, but because I love them. When I watch Bambi, I cry. When my mama gets mad, I still run and hide. Like David, I want to be a man after God's own heart. I'm not there yet, but I'm past the start. When people talk, I try to listen. The spirit of compassion, that's my vision. Surely I am a manly man. I want to be love and have love and give love, and not just the romantic kind either. Although I'm looking for that beauty, not helpless, but wants to be rescued. The damsel in distress, man, woman, myth, true. I will fight for her. I will climb the highest tower for her, love her, share with her, delight in her, be her warrior, her protector. She will be my crown and I will be hers. My masculinity will be passed down and affirmed to my sons. Each of my daughters will know that they are lovely and deserving of authentic romance. Society tells me all day long that I have defined manhood completely wrong. But I ask you, ask any honest man and he will agree. You ask any honest woman and she too will see that I am a manly man. I love that he says, a man after God's own heart. I'm not there yet, but I'm past the start. To me, that was a cool line. 
I want to be a man that desires the thing that God desires. All those other things about the Ford pickup truck, sorry, John, or beards, or burping, or whatever you want to define manhood, it does, that does not define what we believe a man is at City Lights. A man is somebody who loves and leads and seeks God and protects his family. Somebody agreed, that's good. My question this morning, are you developing spiritually? Are you, as a man, are, are you developing emotionally? Are you even developing financially to protect your family, if that's possible? What are you doing to develop? If you're a man, how are you growing? Are you seeking God? Are you, are you seeking his strength and his wisdom? See, our, for some reason, if you look at scripture, you will see that there is an absence of a word called adolescence. You will see in scripture that a person, a boy, was either a child or a man. And somehow we've created this culture that we can live in this indefinite stage of adolescence where we're not children, we're not adults. We just kind of discover who we are and have fun and play games and God's all for fun and sports and games. But there's a time where I'm no longer a child. I put away the childish things and I become a man. I become an adult. I seek him and I display him and I father and I love. Does that make sense this morning? As men, we are called to love God and love our families, to teach and to lead, to protect. Women, for you, I hope that this is the kind of man you are either married to or the kind of man you're pursuing. I hope that you're not deceived by cultural definitions of what a man is. I hope that you don't get lost when those things disappoint you. Because the truth is, strength fades, sex fades. Money fades. Everything else fades. But a man who desires God's heart, a man who seeks him, that's good stuff. That's quality for you. See, I'm accountable to my wife to be a biblical example of manhood to her and to my children. If you're not married, I encourage you this morning, if if you're a man, don't find your identity in any other of the society standards. Find it in his standards. Find it in his definition. 